Hey guys, welcome to the Quacks Podcast. Today I have an interview for you with Keith Bell. So Keith is the leader of a website and Facebook group called The Gut Club, which he started in 2015. So he has seen tons of microbiome tests and he does coaching on how to take your tests and start moving uh, in the right direction. So I'm really excited to have him on. If you can't tell, I have been really interested in the microbiome for the last few months. It's just, I just think there's so much potential there. And as I've learned more about the microbiome, I've been looking for people who have gotten their hands dirty, you know, so to speak, and just what kind of observations they have and, and how they deal with this inner bacterial colony, I guess you call it. Now, a few things I want to mention before we dive in. First off, Keith He's got a big brain. He is a pretty smart guy, and he does a lot of research, so some of his stuff is a bit dense. Uh, For example, we talk about phages. Uh, If you don't know what a phage is, it's actually a virus that infects and replicates within bacteria. So just, just like there are viruses that infect our own cells, there are viruses that infect bacteria specifically, and they're called phages. Uh, Phages are actually beginning to become kind of more popular as a supplement uh, to alter the microbiome. There are several products on the market. Uh, I've heard mixed reports with using them. Uh, One of these days, I'll probably try one of them out just to see what it does and maybe do an episode on it. Now, Keith, he also talks about the Firmicutes and Bactroides ratio. I think I said those right. Uh, If you haven't heard about this, these are two of the major phylum of bacteria that are found in your gut. In fact, most bacteria in your gut kind of falls into one of these two categories. Uh, There have been studies showing that, you know, if your ratio uh, Firmicutes to Bacroides, uh, if it gets too high, meaning you have too many Firmicutes, you can be more prone to obesity. Uh, if it gets too low, meaning you have too many Bactroides, you can be more prone to prone to uh, IBS, Crohn's, uh, other bowel diseases, things like that. So when Keith talks about uh, my microbiome going from Bactroides dominant to Firmicutes dominant, it means something big has changed. What that is, you know, what it means, that's kind of a mystery. We'll see. (laughs) Let's see what else. Uh, We talk a little bit about type 1 diabetes later in the show. That was interesting. But I think think I'll just leave it there. Uh, The interview does start a bit slow, but picks up as we dive into interesting subjects like baby poop. Anyway, enjoy. Keith Bell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, Lucas. It's, It's an honor to be speaking with you today. I'm a fan of your podcast. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. I've been uh, chugging on now for almost a year and a half interviewing all kinds of different guests and stuff. And I'm really excited to have you on because you have experience in an area, uh, the microbiome that I have been getting really interested in lately. Uh, so I'm hoping, you know, you can tell us some some really interesting things. Uh, but before we get into that, why don't we just talk about your background, you know, how you kind of got into this microbiome thing, what interests you about it, that kind of stuff. Okay, well, I think uh, it goes back to uh, the end of 2008 when our family dog began having a seizure disorder. And it took me about a year of uh, trials and tribulations before I began noticing this, you know, that her symptoms were correlated with uh, gastrointestinal problems. So I started to uh, look into you know, I guess this would be 2009, the, the gut-brain connection, and started learning about 
about microbes. And at that time, the, you know, the leading neurologists were not even able to acknowledge that it was, it was even possible for the gut to cause a, a seizure. Um, and, and it's an excruciating issue, actually, that's part of almost every disease. I mean, if you, it's hard, I'd be hard-pressed to name a disease that wouldn't include seizure as a symptom. So it's been a nice platform for me to learn about gut-brain axis and, and the gut in general. Um, before then, I was a, um, a UNICEF spokesperson in the 1980s. Um, and, um, as a volunteer annually for the state of the world's children report release, I, I was a spokesperson on the NPR affiliate in Chicago where I'm from. And so health has always been on my radar. Uh, I got into the recycling business, um, in the, in the 1980s and kind of a, a self-proclaimed environmentalist. So, uh, the last 10 years though, I've been jumpstarting my, my passion, um, for both the environment and health and, and marrying those two interests. Uh, finally, in, at the end of 2015, I decided to launch the gut club, uh, the gutclub.org, um, website went up at the beginning of 2016 and, um, gosh, four years later, we now have, um, a pretty active Facebook page where most of the action takes place got over, over 10,000, um, I think almost 11,000 people, which may not seem like a lot for Facebook. Hopefully soon we'll have, you know, be able to, to uh, do some promo like we're doing today and, uh, have a hundred thousand people. We have, um, a closed group. It's private. Um, it's the gut club stool test discussion group where you and I met and you were so generous to post your own stool test charts. Maybe you could tell us a bit about, um, cause I know you, uh, co-author papers and stuff like that. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, one of the projects of the gut club is the microbiome vaccine safety project. Um, you know, we also have the gut brain epilepsy project, but we don't have a, a publication yet for, for that project, but we do have one, um, about whether or not microbiota have the ability to cause an adverse vaccine reaction, which is really a novel idea. I've been writing about it and publishing articles about it since 2014 and well before then, um, on Facebook, exploring it publicly. Uh, and, um, in fact, I, I was pretty, uh, um, suspicious that a vaccine had caused our dog's seizure disorder. So since then I've been doing a lot of research and, and, uh, it took a few years to recruit co-authors for this, um, paper that we wrote called do gut microbiota mediate adverse re vaccine reaction. And, uh, one of them, um, Dr. Lijuan Yuan, uh, well, we, we talked probably for a few years before she was able to step out um, and really go public with this question that has never been researched, um, or at least nothing published about this area. I mean, everyone um, has been aware that microbes do regulate vaccine response, and they have the ability to actually cause failure. Um, you know, that's associated with poor sanitation in parts of, of the world that where they don't have toilets, which is half the world. Um, 
you know, vaccines don't stand a chance due to imbalanced gut flora. That's, that's well established. But what's never been really asked is whether or not microbes have the ability to lead to an adverse va vaccine reaction, including autism. Uh, and, uh, you know, the gut-brain axis in autism is quite well known. So I like to think that uh, that this really explains something that Dr. Uh, Andrew Wakefield was talking about in the late 90s, I think 1998, when really all hell broke loose um, regarding vaccine hesitancy. And um, people became aware that it's possible by way of a gut-brain axis that a vaccine may lead to autism. Uh, and of course, there are other circumstances where gut microbes can colonize uh, a, a fetal um, gastrointestinal tract. Um, so, so even without vaccination, it, you know, it's, there is plenty of circumstantial evidence that would point toward autism, you know, being caused by a gut brain. Uh, really, it's called now the microbiota gut brain axis. But my uh, hypothesis, you know, ever since um, 2012 or so was you know, and is that microbes present at time of vaccination guide immune response that can lead to, I guess, brain inflammation would be would be uh, how, to, how to put it. I mean, we're, we're talking about encephalitis and, you know, there, there are all kinds of vaccine injuries now that can lead to demyelination and and how that is also connected to the gut. In fact, uh, you know, well, it's known that gut microbes can regulate the blood-brain barrier and uh, and myelination. Um, they, you know, I I was looking into just this afternoon the idea that type one diabetes can be related to multiple sclerosis tied together with that microbiota gut-brain axis. And there is some credence to that hmm. as well. Yeah, that is interesting. One, It's interesting you mentioned autism because I think, I don't know if it was a paper I read. I read something that suggested autism may in some ways be almost like an autoimmune condition. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, definitely. You know, I think these days almost everything can be construed as an autoimmune condition. It wasn't that way maybe five years ago, but people are learning pretty steadily that we can become our own worst enemies. And, um, you know, this cytokine storm um, is being talked about quite heavily with uh, respect to COVID-19. You know, it's not the virus that's actually causing people to die directly. It's, it's how the virus leads to an, an immune response, uh, possibly uh, due to how it interacts with microbes, in fact, um, because we know that Viral replication is actually regulated by bacteria. There's this interaction, hmm. viral bacterial interaction. Um, so, anyway, the you know COVID nineteen is is thought to be an immune response to the the virus that leads to multi you know system and organ damage. It's not just our lungs, but our our brain and our kidneys, um, and and the way our blood coagulates. So, you know, it's all about immune response. And wouldn't you know that 
80%, 70 to 80% of our immune system is housed in the gut and, uh, and gut microbes basically run the show. Hmm. So there's quite a lot of research that, that I've been collecting and publishing on one of our photos. I call them photo explorations on the gut club Facebook page. One of them is about T1D. I'll, I, I may have sent you a link, but I'll send it to you again. Okay. Um, where, you know, I can basically collect papers as they come along and uh, put them all in one place for people to see. So, you know, we have a COVID-19 exploration with, you know, uh, probably at least 10 to 20 uh, published papers all about gut microbes related to immune response in COVID-19 and also susceptibility to uh, severe symptoms based on microbes. So wow. I wouldn't be, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, FMT, that's fecal microbiota transplant, becomes, you know, one of the ways to reverse uh, COVID-19 symptoms. Well, let's talk about that real quick, because I actually have a couple friends with an autistic son who are going to go down to Mexico and get their son a fecal transplant. Um, and, you know, I think it's got like an 80% success rate or something. So maybe, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about fecal transplants and, you know, how successful they are. I know right now they're only really cleared for C. diff. And so a lot of, at least according to the FDA, and so a lot of the uses outside of C. diff are, are a little bit experimental. So I don't know, maybe you could touch on that a bit. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are um, just taking it upon themselves to find their own donors. Um, and you have kind of a cottage industry of DIY FMT. And be simply because doctors have their hands tied, they don't, um, you know, by law, they cannot apply FMT to their patients' problems. Mm. Um, yet, yet there's plenty of um, research coming out. I just saw a paper published in the last week and a half, I think, about FMT applied to Alzheimer's disease. It's pretty, pretty exciting considering there really is no treatment that any doctors are able to use to address Alzheimer's. Um, but plenty of evidence showing that it's preventable, um, you know, if we, if we look at, you know, lifestyle factors. So, hmm. you know, F FMT has been studied very extensively by Arizona State University, um, where they've done a lot of research in autism and have had stunning success. Not completely reversing autism, but to the point where I think some of the study uh, patients were able to, you know, I think not be classified as autistic. I have to go back and look at the papers, but I think it lasted too, at least two years. Um, two years later, wow, you know, they, they had resolved at least 50% of autistic symptoms. And this is not so surprising given the research that we've been seeing over the last, you know, seven years or so. I mean, certain microbes you know, have been found to be protective in attenuating autistic symptoms like uh, lactobacillus bacteria. That's one of the areas that, that I'm very, you know, I, I place a lot of weight on lactobacillus, so much to the point where a couple of months ago, uh, the Gut Club recently began producing our own kefir grains. We can talk a little bit about that later, where lactobacillus is a very important part of, of kefir. I grew up saying kefir, so uh, <laughs> in, inside I 
I kind of wince when I say kefir these days, but but that's uh, apparently the correct way to say it. Um, so anyway, um, FMT applied to autism has really some you know, some great research behind it. I have a you know a personal hypothesis that breastfed baby poop may in fact be some of the most powerful untapped medicine on earth. <laughs> wow. Because baby poop is pretty special stuff when it's breastfed uh, and also hopefully unvaccinated because vaccines may not only you know, lead to adverse reaction based on the microbes present at the time of vaccination, but they also may lead to an immune response that shifts flora in the wrong direction. So therefore, therefore a vaccinated infant may not be the best choice for a donor for FMT. Um, but a breastfed unvaccinated infant would have baby poop that would be very high uh, in bifidobacteria, which I like to call the Rolls Royce of the microbiome. Mm. Bifidobacteria, you know, is something so crucial to infant health. Um, and sadly, over the last century, uh, some published research pointed out over, over the last century, bifidobacteria have been declining to the point that that fecal pH has risen. It's become more, more alkaline and um, gastrointestinal pH rather. So, you know, this is a, a real problem that's probably about more than just uh, vaccination increase, but also environmental issues like pesticides. In fact, glyphosate, also known as Roundup, was shown to be, well, bifidobacteria rather, were shown to be the most sensitive microbe of all those tested to be inhibited and killed by Roundup. Wow. So, yeah, that's a shocking That is shocking. I didn't know thing. that. And, yeah, it's, and, and really, it's a call to humanity that we need to invest more in regenerative um, agriculture. And, uh, and people need to seek out organic foods so that we're not eating so many antibiotics and, and uh, consuming so much pesticide. Well, if uh, if fecal, um, you know, baby poop from breastfed moms is is the you know fountain of youth, I'm sure there's some moms out there who could give us all we need um, forever and ever. <laughs> yeah, you know, you if anyone needs it, um, they might contact their local La Leche League uh, to, you know, and uh, because it may not be that hard to find, it just takes a little bit of gumption. And ba baby poop is also very high uh, relative to um, children's and adult poop in phages. That's uh. the healthy viruses. In fact, phages dominate the infant gut more so than bacteria. Um, and, and then it reverses, but, but phages, you know, you know, here, here we think viruses are, are such bad things for so many years when in reality they may be the most protective th microbe. Um, wow. so in fact, in fact, phage, Therapy is on the rise, um, hopefully, as a way to to halt antibiotic abuse. Hmm. I mean, we've got such problems with with antibiotic resistance and creating antibiotic resistant bacteria, and the solution just may be phage therapy. There's a lot to it. Um, 
so baby poop is high in phages. It's high in bifidobacteria. Um, you know, there are a few other areas where baby poop shines. And, um, you know, there is scant evidence. There's one research paper I found so far where they did show that breast, that, that breastfed baby poop that also um, uh, um, included solid food. They were, the, the infant was about a year and a half old. Mm. And combined with solid food and breastfeeding was better than just breastfeeding um, for creating a, a successful FMT. And, you know, that may have to do with uh, the fact that when solid food is added, that's when clostridia begin to flourish. And these butyrate-producing clostridia are key. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's thought that, that clostridia may actually be the reason for a successful FMT. So it's very important to do testing of both the, the donor and the recipient in order to at, at least attempt some kind of match. Gotcha. But, but clostridia are also key in type 1 diabetes. Uh, the butyrate producers are known to, you know, to activate in cretin hormones like, like GLP-1 which lead to insulin secretion. Yeah, let's let's talk about type one diabetes. So before I get into my bit, what uh, what got you interested in it in the first place? You know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades and a master of none when it comes to this, and that's half the reason I started the Gut Club was was to be able to catalog all this research. One of the things that Facebook offers is a a content library where I'm able to search, you know, by keyword and and also all the photos. Uh, all, all the explorations to kind of keep track of all this. Otherwise, there's no way I could re I can remember it. Um, so, you know, T1D, I, I know a few things off the top of my head to talk about. Um, yeah. So what are you, like, what are you curious from me? Well, you know, I, I was fascinated that you went um, with a protocol uh, working with Ken uh, Lassenen. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He's he's so prolific. Yeah. Uh, he you know, he gave you a, a protocol that was based on, you know, in large part using antibiotics, which really is a red flag to me. I, I would say that that's not the wise move. Um, but, you know, there, there is some credence. Um, and lo and behold, your symptoms did improve based on using, what, two or three different antibiotics, as well as some other things. So it's not just the antibiotics that were in your protocol. But, but I was fascinated to, to see that things did move in the right direction for you, um, at least temporarily, to attenuate symptoms where I guess your insulin sensitivity increased based on this protocol. And that really was manifested um, in your stool test results mm. because your, your formicutes bacteroides ratio, those are the two phylum that dominate the, the, you know, the human microbiome as well as, you know, in most mammals and, um, bacteroides in the beginning of your protocol, I think there was one problem where you, you're, you didn't have the first stool test coinciding with the beginning of the protocol. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, the first stool test was actually after the first round of antibiotics. Yeah. So we couldn't really get a handle on, on a baseline. But but we could see the baseline, I think, 
a few months before because you did you did a stool test a few months before, and um, and so we saw this trend where your bacteroides were reduced and your firmicutes were raised over time to the point where they actually became dominant. Hmm. And that, you know, coincided with apparently increased insulin sensitivity because were you able to use less insulin? Yeah. So uh, for, for anybody who wants to hear the whole episode, I think it's a few back and it's called like the gut protocol I did. And so, so I really go through each antibiotic I did and each herb and, and the whole process. But yeah, I noticed it was really almost after the first antibiotic I did, which was erythromycin, um, I just needed less and less insulin. There's there's two different types of insulin. There's long-acting insulin, and then there's short-acting insulin. And so the long-acting insulin is kind of, it's called your basal insulin, and it's it's there to counteract the glycogen that your liver is producing, and it's kind of just there to, you know, keep your blood sugar steady. And then when you eat carbohydrates, you use the short-acting insulin to, to, you know, handle those. And so my long-acting insulin went from, 30 down to, you know, 18 or something like that, which was a pretty significant, um, decrease. And, uh, it, you know, this was in January. And as of today, I think I'm taking 20 units of long acting per day. So, I mean, it's definitely stayed, uh, down in that range since I did the protocol and there are confounding factors too, um, which I wrote about a little bit. Um, I mean, my diet changed a little bit, not hugely, but you know, it did change a little bit. And so, I mean, there's confounding factors there, but I do think from my experience, the antibiotics were the big thing, uh, that, that really changed. Yeah. I, well, I wouldn't doubt that. Um, in fact, in cesarean section birth where antibiotics are used, bacteroides are reduced Hmm. and bacteroides, you know, are, are protective, but when they're, you, you know, you can have too much of a good thing. And, you know, bacteroides are gram-negative bacteria. You know, they have what's called lipopolysaccharide um, bodies. They're, you know, the the cell wall is is a toxin um, known as LPS. And but but that LPS is also important to signal the immune system. And in fact, bacteroides uh, fragilis was found to be one of the microbes that can attenuate autistic symptoms. So you can have reduced bacteroides of the protective type. And, um, but then again, you can have too much Hmm. of, of a good thing. And, you know, so it's interesting to, to see that high bacteroides are associated with, um, with onset of T1D. Um, it also goes back to, you know, some countries that are known to be very high in type one diabetes, like Finland, where, I think they've had generations of dairy consumption. And I think maybe over time that raised um, bacteroides. That's where some of the research comes comes from is Finnish research showing high bacteroides in T1D. Um, and I'm just putting a hypothesis together that that may have resulted from high dairy consumption. Uh, in your situation, you lowered bacteroides uh, with antibiotics in a similar way that antibiotics lower bacteroides in, uh, in C-section and, and create a dangerous situation, in my view, when vaccination comes into play. Um, with, because we know that autism risk is increased in cesarean section. 
and it just may be because of reduced bacteroides due to antibiotics. But it, but in your situation, um, it was helpful, apparently, because your formicutes took over. They are the butyrate producers, which may have helped, you know, this gut hormone insulin axis um, by raising butyrate. Um, and, you know, they, it may have also been about shifting lipid metabolism to raise insulin sensitivity. You had a, a definite flora shift that was obvious. Um, you, you completely reversed your bacter your formicides bacteroides ratio. Uh, and congratulations, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I guess in the beginning when I started the Gut Club Stool Test Discussion Group, I was more skeptical about bacteroides, high bacteroides being a problem. But over time, I began to learn how important bacteroides are to be in balance. And um, I started investigating how different people around the world have different formicides bacteroides ratios. But overall, formicides at the phylum level does predominate. And, um, and when you have bacteroides that are, that are higher than formicides, I think that's a red flag. Um, some people don't put much stock in the formicides bacteroides ratio. I do. Um, that's a very important thing. It also, you know, I put a lot of stock in probiotic microbes, especially lactobacilli. Yeah. Uh, because it's, there's so much gut-brain communication that's reliant on, on it. In fact, lactobacilli are able to raise oxytocin um, in the brain hmm. uh, by way of uh, the vagus nerve. So, you know, so reduced or absent lactobacillus is a huge red flag. But you definitely had some microbial shift that either, you know, raised GLP-1 or other gut hormones uh, to raise insulin sensitivity or some, perhaps some shift in lipid metabolism, as, as I mentioned yeah. earlier. The interesting thing, too, is is I took neem and that almost was even more extreme of a lowering of insulin needs. I mean, for a while, I was at like 16 units a day while I was on neem, and I was waking up, you know, every two hours to drink cranberry juice or something to keep my blood sugar stable. I mean, and I, I got off neem. It was almost too much. And so does that fit that picture, that kind of theory as well? So, so you're saying neem was actually causing problems? Yeah. So, you know, when I was taking these antibiotics, I was lowering the insulin I needed because my blood sugar would be getting low. And so I'd be taking less insulin to, to keep it balanced out. And then towards the end of the protocol, one of the herbs that I rotated on was neem. And neem did that in such an extreme manner that I was having to wake up to, to, to keep my blood sugar up. Um, meaning, you know, I don't know, I was so yeah, insulin yeah. sensitive or whatnot. Yeah, you were lowering blood sugar levels even further and that that can be pretty dangerous. I yeah, think. it was it was um, too extreme. I mean, I, I got off of it, and I was like, "This is too much." Yeah, luckily you're able to you were able to wake up, Lucas. <laughs> That's seriously. I think a lot of people can go into hypoglo hypoglycemic shock or something. Um, yeah, uh, I've, I've always been lucky it, enough to wake up, but I also have a Dexcom that vibrates and beeps at me if my blood sugar goes low. So that that helps okay. uh, wake me up. Yeah, neem. You know, I have to go back and investigate. The antimicrobial properties of neem, they're obviously pretty strong. And um, I have to okay. go back and look at, my, look at my history. But I remember uh, 
neem is pretty uh, pretty fragrant too. Did, were you using neem oil or what? Or neem uh, capsules? Just neem what? powder. I put it in a powder and I capsuled powder. it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that just goes to show that you know it's not just about pharmaceutical drugs. Um, it's probably probably even safer to go the natural route. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of of antibiotics. I should say that one of the mottos I like to live by is you can't kill your way to good health. You have to feed uh, feed the good guys. You have to add life. Yeah, part of part of why I I went that route with the chronic fatigue thing um, was because I'd had symptoms of chronic fatigue in the past. You know, I'd had some yeah. like. Uh, what's it called? Exercise malaise or malaise or something like that. I'd had those symptoms, and so it seemed to make sense to me um, to use it. Yeah. Well, you came out of it um, really on the good on the good end. Congratulations. I think I think some focus now in raising lactobacillus would be a good thing. Do you recall what your lactobacillus numbers were? I think my lactobacillus and my bifido levels are. Uh, like basement levels, very low. And if I remember, acromancia might also be low. Yep, acromancia um, is also low. Yeah, so you know those are three um, very important protective microbes that I would look at on any stool test result, um, because when they're, you know, when acromancia, bifidobacteria, and lactobacillus are reduced or absent, you know that's obvious trouble, and you know. You know, there are ways, I think, to shift flora yeah, what, in the right direction. What, what would you recommend or what would you suggest? Well, you know, for you to uh, raise lactobacillus, uh, I think um, kefir would be a good choice. Uh, and in fact, it's, um, it's dependent on how long it's fermented. We're going to be doing a, a test on our kefir grains that you know, people can, can uh, see it in our store on thegutclub.org. Um, they're called ketosana advanced kefir grains because they're actually enriched with grains from around the world uh, incorporated into our grains as well as researched strains of lactic acid bacteria like lact- lactobacilli and also well-researched strains of beneficial yeast are part of our um, our kefir grains. And you know there has been some re- re- research showing that if you ferment for 48 hours, then the kefir becomes lactobacillus dominant. Um, but after only 24 hours, lactobacilli are still low in kefir. Um, and in fact, it may be of benefit to remove the grains after 24 hours and then do, do the second fermentation another 24 hours without the grains and then the kefir becomes lactobacillus dominant. So hmm. that, that may be crucial. We're, we're going to be doing a, a test soon working with a, a fairly new stool test company from the UK called Biomesite. And actually, the Gut Club does offer a couple of, um, of um, discount codes for our stool test kits, both Biomesite and Thrive. Um, those, those codes are on thegutclub.org. Um, website. Yep, I'll have them in the show notes. I definitely use those when I uh, was doing my Thrive Kit. Great. I, you know, you know, I, I've looked at many different stool test uh, platforms, and those two give a very broad view, uh, and they can also be interchangeable. You can take the the FastQ files, which you did astutely, um, and ran, you ran them through the uh, Biome site platform mm-hmm. to provide you with even more information. 
they both give a, a very broad view uh, that allows us to, you know, to come up with strategies and and actions. You know, some some people still believe that stool testing, you know, microbial DNA stool testing, is something that is not actionable. But I don't think that they these people have been following the latest research or even know what what to look for in a stool test result because to me they're highly actionable one i mean one of the most really amazing examples was about 4 or 5 years ago uh when um a mother posted results of her autistic uh, child <clears throat> pardon me and um you know there was an obvious proteobacteria overgrowth no other test could have re- revealed that and because of, of of that of that result you know the the parents of this ch- of this child were able to make an informed decision to go with FMT and lo and behold the FMT was able to balance the proteobacteria overgrowth which was close to 50% of the microbiome wow that's that's a pretty massive obvious overgrowth and her doctor uh you know, the doctor of the child was not able to interpret that by looking at the stool test charts, um, nor were, were the parents. They just happened to post the results um, on thegutclub.org, and um, I was able to show that there was the, this massive proteobacteria overgrowth. So I like to say never poo-poo the poo-poo tests, Lucas. <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting uh, because I imagine you've seen tons of stories um, like this, you know, you've seen all kinds of people who have different conditions and do, you know, stool tests and come on and post about it. So, I mean, do any stories in particular stick out in your mind that have really, you know, made an impact on you? Well, that, I think that one is the, is, uh, probably the best one. Um, but I, there are, I think there are a lot of people that have come through, uh, that in fact, one of them is a microbiome practitioner, um, uh, in the UK that, has recently stated that the things she was able to learn through our group, um, you know, were able to help balance her microbiome even further than she had already been doing. Um, so I, I like to, to say there's plenty of light at the end of the tunnel when you're not shooting in the dark. And that's where these tests, you know, come into play. Yeah. So you mentioned the kefir. One thing about the kefir that is different than, um, you know, yogurt or whatnot is kefir contains yeast. Uh, and so how does fungus kind of fit in with the microbiome? Like what have you learned or researched about that? Well, one of the, of the, I think crucial things about the way we're growing grains is anaerobically with a tight lid and also with, you know, a dark cloth covering the, um, the jar. And that's important because, uh, it's simulating the conditions of the intestine, but also in my understanding, if you're making kefir aerobically, you know, you know, with air, then you're growing a lot more yeast Mm. with yeast. That's one of the, of the crucial things about lactobacillus because lactobacilli have the ability to signal the immune system in order to have the immune system reduce yeast. You know, there were years and years ago, I, I thought it was like a direct kill. And in fact, in, in the case of, bact- of, of protective bacteroides, it sort of is because they have the uh, ability to basically consume the yeast directly. Mm. But la- lactobacilli, you know, 
know, for many, many years, for instance, women have been using acidophilus as a treatment for vaginal yeast infection. And, um, you know, this is a, a real problem. You know, the vaginal microbiome is another thing because lactobacilli have been shown to reduce transmission of HIV in the vaginal microbiome. That, in, in Africa, those, that's where studies have, have taken place. So lactobacilli are crucial throughout the body. But one of the really interesting things is this relationship. It's really a reciprocal relationship between our immune system and our, our microbes. Where the where the in this case the lactobacilli, by way of tryptophan metabolism, are able to signal immune response <clears throat> to reduce fungi. Hmm. I think that's a fa a fascinating, you know, dynamic. That is. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about with the type one diabetes, or can I ask some some other questions? Well, I you know I think um, you know the the key areas are things like butyrate um, production, where your firmicutes are, are the main butyrate producers. But, you know, Bacteroides can also produce butyrate, but apparently not to the extent that firmicutes do. Um, but also, firmicutes guide the gut-derived serotonin production. And the serotonin is also key in regulating insulin secretion. So... Hmm. That's another fascinating area. You have gut-derived serotonin where you can have too much of a good thing and that's known to lead to diarrhea. Uh, you have not enough serotonin and that's associated with constipation. And this serotonin in the gut uh, constitutes 95% of the serotonin in total in the body, but it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, that's where you need tryptophan to cross the blood-brain barrier as, as precursor to, to serotonin um, in the brain. But gut-derived serotonin has a, a lot of function, and that's also where melatonin comes into play. And melatonin, you know, we can, maybe we should talk more about COVID-19 because that's also, you know, been considered a very important part of, um, of reducing symptoms or, or reducing possibility What's the connection there between melatonin and COVID? You know, I I shouldn't have brought that up because I'm not prepared to talk about that. <laughs> but uh, but but it's you know it's a powerful anti-inflammatory, uh, you know anti antioxidant, um, and I'm I'm going to have to report back to you about okay. that one. Lucas. Sounds good. What about what about some broad things that maybe people could take away about their microbiome? That I mean, obviously everyone is individualized, but you know if you had to. You know, if you were under gun, gunpoint and you had to give some advice for people, what would, what would that be? You know, advice for, for improving the microbiome? Improving basically? the microbiome, dealing with symptoms, um, you know, I mean, because basically uh, the microbiome is such a mystery right now to so many people. And most people who I bring on who, who talk about the microbiome just kind of give hints. They kind of say, well, you know, we don't really know, but maybe inulin is good for most people or something like that. And so mm -hmm. I don't know what is, cause I know you have a coaching practice. What is your experience there dealing with people and, and what makes them healthier in general when, when their microbiome is off? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing, um, what's what we're calling the microbiome balancing private consult. And, um, now there, I'd say in general, and, and this is how I look at my own 
health as well. I mean, uh, in the beginning of our talk, you asked if, you know, what kind of personal journey I was on. Well, you know, when I was 50 years old, and I'll be 59 um, in a couple of weeks, actually. Wow, you look great. Um, oh, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, but inside, uh, you know, maybe not so great. Um, so, you know, it, I think when I was 50, I was heading down a really bad path. I was, I, I was learning about the gut really in the nick of time for myself. I mean, at the time I was probably addicted to ice cream. Um, and even today I, I battle sugar addiction. So, you know, this, you know, you know this could be a, a real problem and, and laying off of, of grains, you know, was a very important, important part of my turnaround. Mm. So, um, just, I think just, just eliminating sugar is, is just probably the most important thing anyone can do. And it's so difficult, but once you're over that hump, it's, it's huge. Also adding dark leafy greens in large amounts. Mm. Um, in fact, I'm a fan of, um, high dose vegetable diets like the walls protocol where greens really take center stage and they're, they're so important that, you know, the vegetables have bacteria that actually are responsible for fermentation. You know, you have, if you're making sauerkraut, for example, the lactobacillus is already in the bacteria, in this, in the cabbage, rather. You don't need to add a starter to make sauerkraut. So, and apples also have very health, healthy bacteria. So, yeah, just eating vegetables is a way to get probiotic bacteria. In particular, I like to promote arugula um, and watercress, but in particular, I like, I like arugula, organic arugula, whether it's baby arugula or, or full-size arugula. It's got its own special microbiome, um, even different from all the other cruciferous vegetables. You know, you can eat a lot of it um, <laughs> pretty easily. I mean, if you were to if you were to simply eat one box of organic arugula a day, uh, that that wouldn't quite be the walls protocol in amount, but it would be a nice modified walls protocol, uh, and you might see big changes. That you know, there's so much to it. The 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 greens uh, have high magnesium. In fact, the you know the blood of plants is chlorophyll. It's pretty much the same identical structure as our own blood, um, except the center molecule is magnesium instead of iron. So, you know, it's high, high dose magnesium you're getting, you're getting certain sugars that feed beneficial microbes, including beneficial E. Coli. Hmm. Um, you know, these days I've been learning a lot more about sulforaphane as well. We just, just began promoting a, uh, a sulforaphane that comes out of the UK, but is also sold in, I'm sorry, in Australia. It's also sold in, in the United States and, um, and it's called Enduracell and it has the highest yield of, of, um, sulforaphane of any product out there. It, it contains the enzyme necessary. So, Interesting. you know, that's another green, it, that's, that's from, from broccoli sprouts. So we're, you know, we're back to greens. Yeah. Um, and in fact, arugula has an analog to sulforaphane called Arusin, uh, and it can do similar things in signaling the immune response. I mean, you're basically activating something called the NRF2 uh, pathway that leads to a cascade 
where our antioxidant enzymes are, are raised, including glutathione, the, the body's master antioxidant. And microbes have the ability to do that as well. For instance, when you eat broccoli, you're raising beneficial bacteroides. Um, but if you don't have the right microbes to begin with, to have that myrosinase-like effect, that enzyme that helps create sulforaphane, leading to that NRF2 pathway to, to basically stimulate our immune system to, uh, to reduce inflammation, which, by the way, is, um, is also key in preventing COVID-19 and can also be used to, you know, to treat COVID-19. Um, so, mm. you know, this is a, a key area where, where, you know, food and microbes come together in a way that nutrigenomics never did, you know, 10 years ago, I was laughing, you know, at sterile health constructs, uh, nutrigenomics was one of them. You know, you couldn't even find the word bacteria on the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page as, you know, as if food is magically changing our genes. Um, what's really happening is food is interacting with microbes that interact with our genes. One thing you mentioned was diet. Um, have you seen microbiomes from like, you know, people who do carnivore or keto or high carb or, you know, you know I mean, have you seen different microbiomes from different diets and can you comment at all at, at the differences there? Yeah, there's, there's some conflicting results. I mean, sometimes, you know, I would recommend a carnivore diet, um, because it, it's one of the things that can very quickly reduce inflammation because, and it's not just about meat itself being being healing, which it is, but it's also about reducing carbs and sugars that would normally feed the overgrown gram-negative bacteria, like proteobacteria and bacteroides. Uh, you know, there I've seen some uh, test results that I'm, I'm questioning these days, where a carnivore diet led to bacteroides dominance. But I've also seen, you know, lactobacillus raised by way of a carnivore diet, which is counterintuitive. One of the programs that um, I think is beneficial is one that that um, we promote. It's called the Cell Reset Program, and it is carnivore for the first week, and then it becomes uh, a more like a paleo diet, staggered throughout a a thirty day period. Long-term carnivore, some people swear by it, but I don't see how it could be a long-term solution if you're not feeding the right protective bacteria, you know, the, the prebiotics that they require. Uh, but, you know, the jury's still out. I think with, for some people it may, be, it may be possible, but I don't know. I, have you ever tried a carnivore diet, Lucas? I have done high meat, but I've never gone total carnivore. I, I always just thought it was too risky. And whenever I've done a lot of meat, I've had insomnia problems. And so I just, I just never went there. Yeah. I've done it a few times just for a week at a time as part of that program I'm, I described, mm. but you know, and after a week, after a week, I thought it was risky also. I don't see how people can keep up a, a pure carnivore diet, but there are some people combining it with kefir and having good results. Mm. So they're actually using more than just a sterile health construct in their diet. I, there's one doctor out there, uh, Dr. Mindy Peltz, who promotes a, 
a keto ketobiotic diet. So it's not just your average ketogenic diet, but it's also factoring microbial balance. So I, I like to think that when we become connected with the web of life, we can make a lot of changes on this planet. That's what we really need to do. That is a great uh, message to end with. Well, I, I actually do have one more question I always like to ask my guests, which is, um, you know, in your experience, is there any health advice out there that you think is uh, just terrible or wrong or should not be followed? Hmm, health advice that's, that's bad. Let's see. When it comes to type 1 diabetes, I've got to tell you, Lucas, uh, there is a group that's promoting low-carb diets, and, it's, and it works. Are you familiar with type 1 grit? Uh, the Facebook group? No. Yeah. It's a really large group. And, you know, several years ago, I think probably before I was ever starting, before I started the gut club, I was, it may have been the beginning, the, the beginning of the gut club. I was in the group, you know, I think they had like a hundred thousand people and, you know, just trying to promote the idea that the reason the low carb diet was working was due to flora shift. And, you know, so you know, basically they banned me from the group because they didn't want to talk about mm. that. And so, so, you know, talking about probiotics also got me kicked out of a celiac research group from the university of Chicago, uh, back in two, in 2012, uh, when they were focusing all about, um, genes as the reason for celiac disease, which is really laughable when you, consider that 40% of Americans do carry the celiac genes, but only about 1%, 1 to 2%, I think, suffer celiac symptoms. And, and the difference is proteobacteria. So I guess if there's any bad advice that's being given out there, it's because they use a sterile health construct. And that's something that I probably derive a bit too much joy in, uh, in battling. You know, people that aren't connected with the web of, of life um, I, I, that's really what drives me. In fact, I, I self-published a children's book in 2018 about rain-making bacteria. You know, this is a planetary issue. It's also connected to, to climate change. Um, you know, not just connected, but microbes are now considered to be, you know, driving climate change. So we really need to become connected with, with, with the web of life, not just for personal health, but planetary health. Rain-making bacteria is something most adults have never heard of. So this, this so-called children's book that I published um, called I Wonder What It's Like to, like to Be a Raindrop, um, you know, that is really an adult, you know, it's really a, an adult book in disguise. Have you ever heard of rain-making bacteria? I haven't. That is, uh, I mean, I'm guessing we could talk a lot longer on that. That's really well, interesting. Just in 10 seconds, I can tell Please you that, do, yeah. that in, in order for it to rain or snow, you have to have bacteria in the clouds. They, they basically are windswept to the clouds from plants and soil. And then once they're in the clouds, they, they can use the water in the clouds um, uh, to create rain by way of freezing that rain. It's called ice nucleation. And, you know, so if we didn't have bacteria in the, in the clouds with the ability to freeze water at relatively high temperatures. I mean, there's one experiment on, on you can see on YouTube where they just take a, a dropper of this type, one type of bacteria, um, a pseudomonas bacteria, and it immediately freezes the water. 
It's just fascinating wow. how that how that happens. And 99% of all rain comes from ice clouds. You know, there's also bacteria um, and protozoans, diatoms, in oceans, you know, that are responsible for holding carbon. Hmm. And and so you know, these bodies of water are just like our bodies. It's you know, the metaphor is is pretty profound when you consider that our environment is out of balance to the point where it drives you know, global warming. So using antibiotics and antifungals indiscriminately all over the planet, you know, is probably not a great idea. Oh yeah. Pesticides. Um, in 2015, I published an article. You can find it on green med info. It's about looking at the California drought possibly being associated with the, the overuse of pesticides and inhibiting and killing rain-making bacteria in soil. So, yeah, there's, mm. the, you know, there's the, the expression that rain doesn't come from, uh, you know, the sky. It comes from the earth. And here, you know, here, we're, here we are with, uh, you know, the planet on fire, you know, global wildfires. I don't, I don't know if you follow the news about that, but, you know, people aren't considering what caused that you know, a drought that happens to be regulated by atmospheric, the atmospheric microbiome. Yeah, that is, that is wild to think about. It is. All right. Well, before we log off, why don't we, uh, talk about, you know, what, what your website is and kind of where people can find you and, and all that great stuff. Okay. Well, uh, the website's thegutclub.org and, um, you know, we're on Facebook, the gut club, and also the gut club stool test discussion group. Those are basically the three spots. We have an Instagram Instagram page as well, the Gut Club, and um, that's about all we have right now. You know, we'll be branching off. I'm I'm hoping to raise some funds to produce a film about these subjects um, that we've talked about today. Um, we've been working on this for a couple of years, but raising money for the film is probably harder than actually producing the film. <laughs> so. If you or, or or you know someone that would be interested in, in uh, becoming an executive producer, I'm all ears. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, you do some coaching and stuff? What if people are interested in that? Uh, well, that would be on thegutclub.org under the uh, microbiome balancing private consult. Okay. And that's basically where they do a gut test, a microbiome test, and then you kind of look at it and, and tell them like suggestions or, or what? Yeah. Yeah. We look at it, analyze it, uh, together, follow up with a report by way of email with a long list of options, you know, hopefully expanding, um, an individual's toolbox to be able to balance flora. And, you know, there are so many options that can be used. You know, I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't give people an exact protocol, but my goal is to expand their toolbox. And there, you know, there's so many, so many supplements um, and uh, and different dietary changes um, that that people are in, in general don't have time or just haven't yet learned about. Um, so uh, I'm a- able to open some eyes and and hopefully push things in the right direction. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Keith. Thank you, Lucas. It's a pleasure speaking with you. So one thing I thought was uh, really interesting was this idea he presented of the sterile health construct. And I never really thought of it this way. But basically, you know, when you're reading about a substance that does, you know, X, Y, Z in the body, maybe it's anti-inflammatory or antagonizes cortisol or whatever. 
you know, that research is coming from a place where the specific bacteria that, that live, you know, within us or on us, it's just not accounted for in that research. So I, like, for example, I used to be a big fan of Ray Pete's stuff, but a lot of his recommendations, uh, like caffeine, aspirin, B vitamins, they just made me feel terrible. Now, interestingly enough, on my last microbiome tests, uh, my recommendations were to avoid B vitamins, caffeine, and aspirin. So I was reading Ray Pete and coming from an understanding that just doesn't account for what my specific microbiome reacts to. And I think this is why there is such confusion within the medical world. Even drugs, you know, let's say even drugs out there with the most rock solid double blind studies, you know, showing drug A does, you know, treat symptom B. They have people within those studies who don't react well to the drugs, you know, people who drop out of the study uh, because they can't tolerate the drug or they have a severe reaction. And the usual explanation that we get is that their genes uh, that we have all completely mapped out were somehow to blame. And if we have all the genes mapped out, you know, we should be able to figure out which genes prevent you from taking this drug and which don't. But it just doesn't work like that. You know, we have to experiment and see what happens. Now, the microbiome, if you put that into the puzzle, it just resolves a lot of this confusion. And it explains why, you know, you're reacting so poorly to something which on paper should be, should be good for you. The other thing that Keith talked about was the whole cloud thing. And so I, I looked this up because when, I, when he was first talking about it, I was hearing him and I was thinking... There's, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's storms on other planets that rain. So how does this make sense? But it is, in fact, true. Apparently, what happens is water can have a hard time freezing if it's really pure. Uh, generally, when water freezes, the crystals of ice, they start to form on impurities and other things within the water uh, that kind of give the crystal a site to grab onto. It's, it's called nucleation. Certain pseudomonas bacteria, they have nucleation sites that help water freeze if it's in this kind of super cool state. (laughs) Super cool. So I've included a video where some water that is still liquid at under zero degrees freezes when you add this bacteria to it. It's it's pretty cool, it actually. It it it's like water, the bacteria drops on it, and the whole thing turns to ice. Anyway, if you want to check it out, it'll be in the show notes. It does get pretty complicated. Like I looked more into this this whole bacteria thing. There is this whole relationship between the bacteria, the water, the plants all over the world, and they interact in this synergistic way to make sure the plants get fed, uh, you know, get water. And, you know, it's crazy to think that if we were to kill off a lot of this bacteria, we would probably get less rain and plants would get more water. I mean, you know, it's just nuts. Droughts can be caused by antibacterial pesticides. I mean, that's just another great reason to dislike Roundup and all these pesticides. It's, It's pretty crazy. So if you want to read about it, it's in the show notes. Other than that, that is it for me. Uh, let me know what you thought about this episode. Shoot me an email at quackspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, go to the website, quackspodcast.com, where you can click on individual episodes and leave a comment if you want, or you can shop through our Amazon portal. That is always helpful. Uh, we love that. And yeah, thanks for listening. Be well.